0: The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. In all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well crafted. Welcome to the House of Roll. The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen centric government? I'm proud to call it home. This is my country. i never stand alone. It's time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. my country. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy,
1: and welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. You know there are a whole lot of people in politics and in media whose purpose is to inflame your passions rather than to reason with you, and my purpose is different. I've come to inform you, to give you information that will enable you to make an independent judgment on current events and to encourage you to act on that judgment. As a businesswoman, I focus a lot on the numbers. And in the numbers this week, a 1,000 Points of Light, the legacy of George H.W. Bush, the 41st President of the United States. And it seems fitting that a focus of our program this morning will be on philanthropy at this season of giving. The importance that we place individually and collectively on our responsibility and the privilege that we have to help one another, to lift one another up as individuals and as an American ideal. Our guest this morning is Tricia Bright, the CEO of Good Social a social network for social good, a new social platform for community engagement. Prior to Good Social, Tricia spent 25 years in the high-tech industry as a marketing executive and a general manager. And, you know, it seems particularly uh, significant to have Tricia as a guest this morning because Good Social is the technical realization of George Bush's intent with a thousand points of light to help people to interconnect on an individual basis to build a better society. In a letter to his granddaughter, Jenna Bush Hager, the pre- President Bush wrote in 1997, as I said when I was president, there can be no definition of a successful life that does not include service to others. So, Tricia, let's begin with your thoughts about the importance of philanthropy and social impact in the 21st century.
2: Well, first of all, thank you, Joyce. It's really a privilege and a a pleasure to be on your show today. Um, The role of philanthropy is fundamentally the same in the 21st century as it always has been. Um, We all have a role to play to contribute to the well-being of society. What I would say is different, however, is that it's so important uh, and why it's so important that we all play our part is the scope and the magnitude of the problems that that are facing our communities. We have the chronic problems like homelessness and hunger and food insecurity, but we're also seeing a dramatic increase in natural disasters that are affecting lives at a really large scale and creating urgent moments um, and need for support. Um, and, of course, a, a very recent example is a campfire that destroyed an entire community and left thousands of people homeless and without jobs and without schools. And- now, there are amazing nonprofits in these communities that are working hard to address the challenges, but they cannot survive without the help from everyday citizens. Um, and so, fortunately, our, you know our nation has a wonderful legacy of people showing up and lending a hand.
1: And it's, it's interesting because in December, I mean, it's just a coincidence that the fire happened so close to the holiday season. But we do see in December, according to uh, the statistics, about a 14 percent increase in the probability that an individual will make a donation. And I think one of the things that makes good social so important, the idea behind good social, and let's talk for just a minute about how it works, you know, what What do we mean by a social network for social good? It's it's going to fill, as you pointed out, the increased n- number of needs uh, that we all hear about. I mean, we hear about food insecurity. We hear about homelessness. We live with homelessness in, in our communities here. Um, yeah. We all want to do the right thing, but sometimes we don't know how, and I think that's one of the really... Uh, great things about Good Social, about the idea that you have. And, and so maybe we can take a moment to talk about what Good Social is. You know, how does it work? Um, what do you mean by a social network for social good?
2: Sure. I'd be happy to, to explain. So really the fundamental premise behind Good Social is making it easy for people to find and get involved with the nonprofits where they live. Um, initially through performing volunteer service um, and then eventually, and and in the not-too-distant future, um, making it easy for people to also make donations. Um, And the way that it works is that it will match individuals up with the nonprofits in their area that are doing work that aligns with what's important to you because that really makes the work um, that much more meaningful. Um, And it gives you a way to see what the needs are in your community. Um, so in that way, you can think of it a little bit like Facebook for Social impact, because it's a way for people to find and share information. Um, and we're giving you a window in what the needs are in your community and which nonprofits are doing the important and you know oftentimes really challenging work of addressing the needs. Um, and that's really why it's called Good Social. It's a social network for social good. And so we're all about helping you see the need and then making it easy for you to be the change.
1: And and I think one of the things that is really exciting about the idea is that it will give the individual who wants to um, donate or volunteer, et cetera, um, a sense of which organizations, you know, we hear about scams that go through, you know, things like GoFundMe, et cetera. Um, where then it turns out there was recently an, a, a thing on the news about you know how a homeless person had been used and then ended up suing the people who used him yeah. uh, to raise a lot of money. And one of the things that, that in our earlier conversations about Good Social um, that I think is particularly important is that when you come to a platform like this, you know that the organization's been vetted that the, the nonprofit before it becomes a part of Good Social has been vetted and that your money is really going to go or your time uh, is really going to go to the cause that um, that is represented. And I think that's a very important thing is that linkage.
2: Absolutely. And one of our primary objectives for Good Social is that it becomes a central and a trustworthy source of information for how we can help uh, communities in crisis is a great example of um, certainly, there are the big nonprofits like Salvation Army and american red cross the the, the ones that everybody's familiar with that do such amazing work uh, you know at the ground level while the crisis is still playing out um, and there 's always an amazing outpouring of support from surrounding communities, but the reality is two things um, there 's often a mismatch between what people do through genuine desire to and intent to to be helpful, um, but and what's actually needed in the moment. So, a great example: people may send up a bunch of clothing and furniture um, to the folks in, in in affected by the campfire because they can imagine that they need to reestablish themselves in in, in a housing situation. But what's really needed right now? Are suitcases and toiletries. Suitcases because people are getting things donated and they have no way to transport them around, for example. And that actually creates an entirely new set of problems that the the local nonprofits that are working on the ground have to deal with. But the other point, Joyce, is what you just brought up, and that is the fact that unfortunately, um, there are people that look to take advantage of these kinds of situations. And so Good Social will be that trusted source where only legitimate vetted nonprofits will be represented on the platform. So you can feel confident um, that when you support one of those nonprofits, the, the support that you give is actually uh, being dr- uh, directed towards um, a legitimate uh, operation. Uh,
1: and I think that's very important. But let's take a moment and talk about the social side of good social. Um, and, I, and I think um, before we do that, why don't we go ahead and take that commercial break that's coming up. Um, and we'll be back in just a moment to talk about the social side of good social.
0: You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy.
1: And we're back with Trisha Bright to talk about the social impact of good social. You know, one of the things that you and I have talked about um, in, in previous conversations has been the, the way that good social will help people, like-minded people, to um, both uh, congregate, find a way to link up with other people, um, but also to begin to develop a profile um, of their of their philanthropy, so to speak, uh, that will help to Im- increase their professional and social network. So why don't we talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Uh, uh, so
2: good, one of the things that, that people uh, – do individuals who uh, engage through good social is that we help them build their social impact profile. So you can think of this a little bit like LinkedIn, which represents who you are in your professional life. Your good social impact profile really tells the narrative of who each of us is as a good person. So as you're performing volunteer acts, those will get credited towards your um, social impact profile. And over time, um, you build up this, this picture of, you know, how you're showing up in, in your community and who are you as a, as a good human being. Um, because, uh, you know, our belief is that your social impact footprint is important. It matters. It makes a difference. And now we're just um, providing a means by which all of that can be captured and record, recorded and, and shared with the world. Um, and there are a couple of points in time in particular where we think this is a really valuable piece of social currency um, for young people as they're working their way through high school and are involved in service work. Um, at that point when they are going to apply for college, they now have this great additional credential to present about themselves um, in the form of the impact profile. And then again, as people are in, uh, entering, um, entering the workforce, um, if you think about the trends that are happening around corporate social responsibility and um, the, the, the desire for, especially the younger people entering the workforce, to carry their social values with them into work, the social impact profile allows um, both parties, both the you know the, the job applicant and the hiring organization, to have a conversation around how that aspect of their employment relationship um, will be fulfilled.
1: And. And isn't that a two-way street? Isn't that a way for, um, you know, we th- we know the millennial generation um, and their successors um, are more interested in the social impact of a company they might choose to work for. And as we move in the 21st century away from, you know, huge multi global multinational global corporations to more smaller companies, how is good social going to help the young um, person out first out looking for their first professional job either out of undergraduate or graduate school um, or or a technical school? How is good social going to help that person to to identify companies that have the same social values
2: sure. So, um, in the very near sh- future, uh, we will be adding a corporate profile to good social, and this becomes the avenue through which a corporation shares their social impact story. and it becomes a public another you know public piece of information that a young person who's out looking for their first job, Um, can really get a feel for what is a company's position on social responsibility. How are they showing up in the communities where they're employing people? And, um, you know, what is their philosophy around, um, for example, environmental impact? The things that young people are really um, thinking hard about and wanting to make sure that their personal value sets align with the value sets of the corporations and, you know, large or small Um, that they are considering spending, you know, a portion of their professional lives with.
1: Uh, I think that's a a really important point. And, you know, the last thing that you and I talked about, we kind of did a little brainstorming, um, was if we go back to the campfire, because at the moment that's the most critical need that all of us here in Central and Northern California confront, um, is the, the merger of let's say, helping corporations and NGOs work together to help these people. And then even even beyond that, let's say that Habitat were to become involved. Is that the kind of thing that you would envision where, you know, Habitat would become an opportunity for young people to um, – volunteer for a summer of work to help in the rebuilding effort? Is that, is that some, where you ultimately think somehow the platform will go?
2: Yes, absolutely. We want to be the global platform for everyday philanthropy. And that means that every opportunity um, for people to show up and make a difference will be represented on the platform. And so I, this idea that Habitats for Humanity um, will come into some of these areas that are that have wide devastation in terms of housing, and that those opportunities are easily discovered on Good Social, and those connections are facilitated through Good Social, that's absolutely a role that we envision the platform playing, and it's something we're really excited about.
1: And see, that's a way that, let's say, a developer um, could actually engage and and help to create, let's say, a, a kind of quasi um, apprenticeship program for you know high school students that want to gain some skills over the summer and explore the possibilities of, um, of of you know a career in the building industry.
2: Absolutely, that's a that's a lovely idea and. And that, that helps that young person build up their social impact profile and, um, and helps them strengthen that, that representation of, of how they're forming as a young person.
1: And so now that we've whetted everybody's um, appetite around good social, uh, let's talk a little bit about the platform itself. How do people find you? Um, how do they sign up? Um, okay. and, and, where, and, yeah. and, and where do you envision this taking them?
2: So, the, the platform, uh, the, the, you started off by talking about the timing of this conversation. Um, mm-hmm. The timing is fabulous on, a, on another level, and that is because we are really, this coming week, going to be opening up the Good Social Platform um, to volunteers. And we're doing it on December the 5th, which, which happens to be International Volunteer Day. Um, so, we're, we're really excited about how, how this is lining up um, in that perspective. Today, if you're a nonprofit, the platform is open. You can go on and build um, your nonprofit profile and begin posting volunteer opportunities. And then starting this coming Wednesday, um, volunteers can do the same thing. They go on and they, they build their good social profile. And, um, and then um, based on their zip code, they will see the activity that's going on um, in their local community.
1: And and place if they, they go to do that, oh, excuse me. Go sorry, ahead. Sorry. No, I I was going to oh. say, and if they if if their intent is only to make a contribution, is there an avenue for doing that as well at this point?
2: The donations functionality will be in place early two thousand nineteen.
0: Mm-hmm. We're
2: focusing initially on the volunteer aspect of Good Social, but uh, the donations capability is not far behind.
1: Okay and and what before i rudely interrupted you you were saying you can go to yes it's
2: uh our website is www.goodsocial.com
1: and um sign up for your profile um and and it on the 5th will also be the national day of um of morning or celebration or whatever you want to call it um for the late President Bush. And so it does seem, it is absolutely serendipitous that this should be the moment um, when you launch uh, because it really is uh, the personification. uh, Your site, your idea is really the personification of what uh, George H.W. Bush wanted his thousand points of light to be. And it was the active Um, active social impact, not just the passivity of writing a check, but the activity of being um, a a socially conscious person in your community.
2: Yes. uh, The the coincidence uh, on so many levels of of his vision and his passing and my vision and the the launch of Good Social, um, it's really quite remarkable.
1: Well... Um, It really is. I appreciate your time. I think the audience will be very interested, and I'll be signing up for my good social profile this week. And thank you, and have a wonderful holiday season.
2: Thank you, Joyce, and you as well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer.
1: And we're back, and we're going to talk a little bit about George H.W. Bush. Um, my phone pinged at about 9.33 on Friday night, and as I glanced over, um, the message was very simple. George Herbert Walker Bush, the 41st President of the United States was dead at age 94. The passing of George H.W. Bush, the 41st president of the United States, was both surprising and expected. He'd been in frail and failing health for many years now. Still, the announcement of his death, simple and, and understated as was his life, the finality of it, found us... Unprepared. President Bush's passing ends an era. He was the last president of the greatest generation. Like John F. Kennedy, he served in the United States Navy during World War II. He saw combat in World War II. He saw his own mortality pass before him. In World War II, he nearly perished and was rescued only in the nick of time, the only survivor of the crew of his downed plane. Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and Jimmy Carter all wore the uniform but did not serve in combat. George W. Bush served in the Air Force Reserve during the Vietnam War but was never activated Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump never served. So when George H.W. Bush sent troops to war, a fraught decision for a people wounded by the loss of life and the lack of victory in the Vietnam War, when George Bush sent troops into battle, he did it fully feeling the weight of responsibility for that decision. Many more capable than I will eulogize George Herbert Walker Bush. And so, you know, I'm going to quote for just a moment from John Meacham's um, incredible biography. He is the official biographer. Um, a book called The American Odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush and he says in the profile and I think it sums it up so beautifully, he was one of the great American lives. Strong parents, a sparkling education, heroic service in World War II, success in Texas oil, a congressman, an ambassador to the United Nations, chairman of the Republican National Committee, envoy to China. Director of the Central Intelligence Agency, Vice President of the United States, and the 41st President of the United States, and the only president since John Adams to see his son also win the ultimate prize in American politics. And I think that sums it up as well as anybody can. Those are all the triumphs. But there were also failures, and he felt the loss of his uh, attempt for a second term quite um, strongly. Uh, writing himself in his own diary, that I've always assumed uh, that <clears throat> I've always assumed that there was duty, honor, country. I've always assumed that what was just part of what Americans are made of, quite simply, it's not. Two days after his defeat in 1992, he wrote, I still feel that there is a disconnect, honor, duty, and country. It's just passe. The values are different now. The signs, styles, the accepted vulgarity, the manners, the view of what's patriotic and what's not the concept of service. All of these now are in the hands of a new generation and I feel I have the comfort of knowing that I have upheld these values and I live and stand by them. I have the discomfort of knowing that that might be a little out of date. And I think that's true. And I think his loss in 1992 uh, was the reflection of of that inflection point. But he was a very consequential president. He was an amazingly consequential president. Most of us have kind of, although we lived through his presidency, um, now we have the fullness of some history to look back on it. But we also had the passage of of time in this 24-hour news cycle um, to forget Um, as well as to remember some of the things that he did that truly changed the world we live in. He was most noted for foreign policy. He was there as the Soviet Union was collapsing. And while we do not, in, in 2018, remember so clearly the the day-to-day events of that time it was not as peaceful and not as predictable a path of um destruction of the soviet empire or dissolution is probably a better word for it of the soviet empire as it appeared to us as we got glimpses of it on the nightly news it was indeed a very perilous time we there was a a huge um, and and ruthless dictatorship and in their hands were thousands of nuclear tipped missiles and there was and they had a collapsing economy and there is a trend in history to use force and violence and start a war or two a little skirmish here and there um, in order to help um move your the attention of your own population away from its economic problems and that's right now a very big part of what's happening between Russia and the Ukraine so it was quite possible if if not handled with great delicacy if not helped throughout eastern europe um to find a soft landing, a, a gentler way to um, help uh, the Russians maintain face as their empire was collapsing around them, we might have seen, God help us, World War III. And it was his delicate, was the delicacy in the way in which, and his own human sensibilities that that not that he didn't want. Um, Uh, Gorbachev and Yeltsin to be humiliated, that he wanted to uplift them for the positive things that he thought they would bring to their country. And so he was, and we'll talk about this on the other side of the break, it's possible that George H.W. Bush, in his calm and deliberate and uh, empathetic nature, prevented World War III from breaking out. And we'll be back in just a second to talk about that a little more.
0: You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy.
1: And we're back. And it's funny, we only have 10 minutes and And we have such a consequential four-year period in American history to look at. Again, what George Bush did was to to choose the higher path uh, in the face of the dissolving Soviet Empire. He he sought to find ways to um, build up Gorbachev and Yeltsin. Um, as reformers rather than uh, seeing them as despots who were uh, clinging um, to an empire in, in economic collapse um, and their satellites disappearing. Um, George Bush was, the, was uh, shocked NATO with his um, uh, support for a reunified Germany Uh, NATO um, at that time, largely the allies who had fought the Nazis, were fearful of a united Germany. And today, uh, the economic strength of a unified Germany is what, in fact, um, secures for the smaller, more Mediterranean countries in Europe, as well as some of the Eastern Europeans, um, the strength of the economic uh, European Union. So again, um, a man who ran against the tide of his time, but because of his own experience with war was um, was both uh, um, cautious and compassionate. And it paid off. It paid off in the war against Saddam Hussein. He gathered together through the UN a delicate, very delicate, but a huge international coalition. There were more than 70 countries involved. He went to Congress and got approval. He was afraid that we might lose a thousand or more troops in an invasion. He did everything he could to prevent the need to actually go to war, to cross from Saudi Arabia into Kuwait and drive Saddam Hussein out. He did everything in in order to, it, because of his concern about uh, the potential loss of of American lives, um, as well as Allied lives, um, but in the final in the final analysis, he got congressional approval, and he fought, and we fought a very quick war that achieved its limited results, and that was a turning point again. Um, it was, uh, it was a moment, it was probably the moment of his highest popularity. I mean, it was, it was an amazingly quick experience uh, for the American people, and it was 100% successful. And, and it may, in fact, um, as he sa- himself said, um, history, he thought that the, co- the victory in Kuwait driving Saddam Hussein back into Iraq um, would would precipitate um, uh, Saddam Hussein's overthrow, and he was wrong there. Um, and the Arabs who lived in the marshes in uh, southern Iraq paid a huge price for that. Um, but he didn't believe he had a mandate to go to Baghdad. That would fall um, to his son, and we are still living with the aftermath of that larger conflict. When it comes, so. In, in foreign policy, he was extremely consequential, and when we come to domestic policy, he was a man of his time. Um, he came to um, from from uh, the post World War two years to become a supporter of uh, the Civil Rights Act. Um, he worked on that during his years in Congress um, with help from Bob Dole, then serving as the uh, Senate minority leader. He did. He always worked with the Democratic Congress. He never had a Republican Congress. He passed the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, he was a proponent of immigration. He sought a more open relationship with Mexico. He was um, well on the way to negotiating NAFTA as he believed in open trade. He was a he was a classic Republican. He believed in free trade. He believed in open trade agreements. And he believed that the borders with Canada and Mexico um, should be open. Now, that may have in an economic downturn led to Ross Perot. And had the economy not begun to decline in his uh, last year of his presidency, um, Ross Perot might not have become a candidate and Bill Clinton would never have been president. Bill Clinton won the presidency with only about 40% of the vote. It was a plurality, not a majority, uh, because the more conservative vote was split between um, President Bush and Ross Perot. Um, And yet, all of the fiscal success, which Bill Clinton took credit for and continues to take credit for, began when George H.W. Bush um, came uh, came together with a Democratic Congress and created a bipartisan five-year budget plan, which raised taxes because it was realistic to raise taxes. And he knew that going back on his Read My Lips No New Taxes pledge, um, you know, going back on that would have political consequences. And yet he thought that digging the United States government out of a deficit, bringing the budget into surplus, was more important than mere politics. And we did. And in fact, during um, much of the of the Clinton years using that budget framework that had been created by George H.W. Bush, we reached a point at which we had very little deficit. And in fact, we had annual uh, surpluses that helped to pay down that deficit. Um, and yet it fell to George W. Bush to correctly predict that that economic cycle in 2000 was coming to an end. And he was 100% right. Um, but much of what Bill Clinton took credit for, whether it was NAFTA, whether it was a balanced budget, etc., were actually the work of George H.W. Bush. And George H.W. Bush was a man of country over party. He believed in bipartisanship. He respected Article 1's relationship to Article 2. So, he proposed and then he worked with the Democrats and the Republicans in Congress to uh, actually dispose uh, and create uh, a uh, governing framework uh, that took us into the 21st century. He worked in, in more than any single accomplishment, more than any one thing. He was a measured man. He was an extremely good example of what we want American leadership to be in the world. He was athletic and outgoing. He was surprisingly tall, six foot two, and I, I guess I never realized that. Um, he was clearly courageous, but he was a man of honor. If he gave you his word, you could count on it. And he was reserved. He was a man of his time. He grew up in the upper crust Northeastern society. Um, And so he could appear to be a, a, a little reserved, but he was never cold or unapproachable. And most of all, most of all, most important to him was to be remembered as a man of honor and integrity who was also compassionate, a man who could think big thoughts and then act on them. It took him two years to reach that balanced budget agreement. He just kept working at it. He kept making compromises. But he was something else. He was the father of six children. He experienced the joys of parenting. And those joys included two of the 20th century's most successful governors were his sons and only the second president in American history to see his son succeed him in the presidency. And he said it was much more painful to him to deal with uh, the press that George W. Bush got than his own. He said as a father, it was harder to accept those criticisms than it had been to accept the criticism of himself. But he also knew the greatest grief in the loss of a three-year-old child to leukemia at a time when there were no possibilities of cure for a diagnosis of leukemia. So he had the best and he had the worst. And I'm sure by this time you have seen uh, some of the great um, uh, political cartoonists who have um, used the opportunity of his passing to show us um, because he was a man of great belief um, that uh, Robin and and Barbara were waiting for him to come and join them. He lived his legacy and he lived it joyfully in a post-presidency that lasted more than a quarter of a century in which he was always a figure of compassion and strength, and a thousand points of light. And on that note, uh, God bless you, George H. W. Bush, and what you—the example you set for this country. And we'll be back in just a moment with a few closing thoughts.
0: To reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on eight sixty AM, the answer.
1: As, and we're back. Um, and in the few closing moments we have together, um, let's talk just briefly about what let's look forward. Okay, at this week of as this week of remembrance begins, we've got to ask ourselves. Some really important questions. We've got to ask ourselves whether charisma or competence, you know we went very briefly through um, President Bush's biography, so we've got to really ask ourselves whether charisma or competence is what should drive the contest for the 2020 presidential election. I think that's really an important conversation. It's one we're going to be engaged in here, I think, pretty quickly. George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush both believe in the post-World War II global order of international organizations, global checks and balances. Were it still his time, H.W. Bush would not have stood apart from the other 19 developed nations on the issue of climate change. Far from being climate deniers, both Presidents Reagan and Bush were the first to put in place government programs aimed at understanding and mitigating climate change to protect the forests, the water, and air, and to look for alternatives almost 30 years ago. At that time, the major issue was what we called acid rain, you know, when it rains that first rainstorm of the winter, uh, when all that black stuff comes down on your car, except for this year when some of that was from the campfire, usually, usually that's coal dust coming from China. That's acid rain. And the first efforts in the United States to stop that use, the use of coal as a primary um, source of energy was during the Reagan and Bush administrations. So that's what conservative used to mean. Conserving resources for this generation and for the future generations. It's conservative to balance the budget, to pay down debt, and yet to maintain a strong military. It's conservative to encourage democracy and to challenge dictatorships. As a conservative... I would like to see a united nation again, rather than a bunch of hyphenated subcultures scheming and divided against one another, as we have seen in the last two uh, election cycles. Actually, we have seen that in the last four, six, eight election cycles. We should want economic freedom for all, freedom from want for all, housing Food security, education, and a social safety net. Those are the unifiers. Those are the principles under which this nation grew and prospered. We need to be, again, instead of a hyphenated nation, it's conservative to believe that equal opportunity, free speech, public education, and justice for all are not just words. And you don't need concertina wire on the border of a friendly nation if those nations are working together to solve mutual problems. We've gotta define migration differently from immigration. And we've gotta understand what is really a refugee versus an economic migrant. And we've gotta find new solutions to those problems because they're not just on our southern border, they're a global problem and they are part and parcel of the climate change phenomena around the world. And we'll be back in next week, uh, as you know, but in the meantime, if you'd like to hear a repeat of this or any other Reimagine America radio hour, you'll find the podcast at reimagineamerica.org. If you have comments you'd like me to cover or, or a thought, Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or tweet at Joyce Cordy, all one word, or at the Reimagine America Radio Hour. And we'll be back again next Sunday to talk perhaps about the climate change report and some possible solutions and a little bit about elections and the integrity of the vote today.